So, do you like elevator music? You know, elevator music. It's, it's the music that's kind of always playing no matter where we go in life. It's the music that's kind of over your head, you know, when you're smelling and thumping the cantaloupes, you know, in the produce section. Elevator music's kind of above you. Elevator music's that music when you're standing in the men's department and you're trying to figure out if you're going to make the shift to skinny jeans or not. That, that's the music playing overhead. And we would probably tell you, don't, you know, just for the sake of most of us, just, just don't. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do, and, and that's fine. Traditionally, in the truest sense, elevator music has no one singing, and there are no commercial interruptions. So it's just a good, steady stream of music. It's often been called easy listening music because it's kind of slow and, and relaxed. And the idea is some believe that if you're out in a store and you're browsing around in the store, that the elevator music will slow you down and relax you so that when you get over to the skinny jeans section, you might hang out for a little while and give in to that urge to buy a pair of skinny jeans. And again, we would tell you don't give in to the urge. This past week, I'm reminded by my youngest daughter and often by my kids that no matter what store we walk out of, I get in the car, and no matter what's going on, somehow I'm immediately singing or humming whatever we just heard in the store, almost every single time. Elevator music or any kind of music in the store can be a little bit addictive. This past week, an article by Marsha Lederman writes about the impact, the emotional impact, that is on our lives, a person's life, when their favorite musical artist dies. This is what she writes. Music is woven into our memories in a beautiful, indelible way. It helps form the fabric of our lives, and then it allows us to instantly recall chapters of our lives long since closed. And then she says this. I love this description. The songs become instant picture postcards, melodic souvenirs. That's true, right? I mean, you're standing somewhere and a song comes on and you flash back to high school or you flash back to college, you flash back to when you were first married or whatever it is. Music has this ability to draw us back immediately to a moment. It's powerful. So, what kind of music is playing in your life? What's the, the background music in your world? Now, I'm not necessarily specifically talking about music in your car, music on your radio. Although, one of our rising first graders in the church did imply this week that if you do not listen to K-Love Christian Radio in your car or your truck, you may not be a Christian. So, no pressure, you know, when you get out in the car today. But it's not necessarily the actual music I'm talking about, but, but maybe more a little bit about the music around your mind and your heart and your soul. What's, what's playing in the background of your life? What is driving and influencing the way you think and the way you act, the way you handle decision-making, the events of your life? What is the elevator music of your soul? And does it matter? Does it really matter what kind of music is playing in your soul, so to speak? Well, an elevator, unless you're Willy Wonka, just goes up and down. Just up and down. And so spiritually speaking, which button are you pushing? Jesus had a moment that I think will help us in finding an answer to that question. Listen as we look at Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 14. 
And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. Jeff Thomas writes about listening to a pastor preach a sermon on demons from the Gospel of Mark. And the pastor, Gordon Reed, began with this. Now, I don't know much about demon possession, but I've read some books by people who say they know something about demon possession, and they don't know much about demon possession either. Demon possession, when we read these stories in the Bible, for those of us, most of modern civilization, it, it sounds a little out there. You know, it sounds, sounds a little strange to us, like something we don't really make a connection with. I mean, I don't go through restaurants during the week, you know, casting out demons as part of my, you know, community service here as a pastor, you know. In 20 plus years of being serving in a church, I've never had someone, you know, call me and say, hey, you know, Dale, I need you to come over. I've got, a, I've got a mute demon, you know, in my house, and I need you to cast it out. Now, I have had some calls about mute spouses every now and then, um, but, but no demons connected there. So we, we have this picture that seems odd to us. It doesn't naturally connect with our world. So, so how do we connect with demon possession in our lives today? Well, I think the best way is to look at the account just as Dr. Luke writes it. So Luke says that Jesus is going along one day, and he comes upon a man. And the man was mute. He was unable to speak. He could not say a word. And this had been going on for some time. Now, Jesus, being Jesus, knew that the man had a demon. It wasn't just that he was some kind of loner who didn't like being around people and didn't want to talk to anybody. He knew there was something more, something spiritual happening. And so according to how Luke writes it, Jesus cast out the demon. And how did he do it? Well, he had two of his disciples stand on either side of the mute man and kind of hold him by the arms. And then he had a, another disciple go around behind. And then Jesus had got a running start, and he went and, and hit the guy on the forehead and said, Abracadabra, let it rip. No, <laughs> that's not what happened at all. In fact, Luke doesn't even say how it happened. So undoubtedly, the how wasn't that important. And the reason I bring that to our attention is because Luke was a detailed guy. But for some reason, he leaves the detail out here. There is no mention of Jesus stopping everybody and, and going and lighting some candles. It doesn't say he started burning some incense. It doesn't say that he took a, a wand and started shaking water all over the place. There wasn't a, a mariachi band that traveled around with Jesus. And at the moment that Jesus was about to slap people on the forehead, boy, they really started playing loud and got the crowd pumped up. None of that do we ever see in the scriptures? No scene of Jesus doing chanting or, or any of those kind of things that sometimes we associate, at least mentally, with demon possession in this day and age. In fact, it just says that Jesus cast the demon out. And if you were to read through the Gospels, it would make complete sense to think that it went much more like this. Jesus walked over, leaned down to this guy, and quietly said in his ear, get out. And the demon left. And there's no argument. You know, the demon didn't fight with Jesus. He just left. And after he left, the man started talking. This scene is electric. It, it's almost like if you've seen some in the news here in recent years of, of someone being in a coma, and then suddenly you know, they, just, they just wake up one day. 
This, this moment was amazing. The people were stunned. This guy either had never said anything since birth, or at the very least, he hadn't said anything in a long time. And all of a sudden, he has this, this brief interaction with Jesus, and he's speaking. Imagine if he was married, if he had kids. I mean, they would be ecstatic, right? I mean, they would be running up and laughing and crying and hugging. I mean, this would be a, a huge moment. And everybody that was standing around, they would see and they would know that something had just happened here, that there was a, a power, there was an authority in this man named Jesus. It was electric. It was exciting. It was clear that God had done something. But it is also clear that undoubtedly there were a couple of Southern Baptists around in the crowd or maybe some Presbyterians or Methodists, not really sure what denomination they were part of. But you'll see as we look at what happens next in verse 15 and 16. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. You know, some of us have the ability to look at God doing something amazing. And as God does the amazing thing, we're thinking to ourselves... That's not according to the church bylaws. <laughs> you know, we, we have this ability to see God doing something great and to step back and go, I don't know, I'm not very comfortable with this. There's something else going on. You know, that's not a new trend. It's been going on since the garden, actually. The, the questioning of God, the questioning of his power, the questioning of his hand and his work. So here are these folks they should be excited for this man. I mean, they would have known at least some of the story of what was going on with him. And they should be excited by him. Instead, though, they are literally playing the devil's advocate. They're literally looking at the scene. They're not denying that something happened. They don't say that. They know something's happened. They know something incredible has happened. But they say that there's no way it could be from God, that it had to be from Beelzebul which is another name used for Satan, the enemy, the devil. In this world and in this world's systems, Satan has some measure of authority and power. The Bible does not exactly tell us why he has this authority and this power, but it does say that he clearly has a measure, and that measure part is very important because it is only a measure. This is what Paul said to the church at Rome. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So when is soon? I don't know. In the words of philosopher Rick Blaine, it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but it will be soon and it will be for the rest of the enemy's life. There will be no rematch when God crushes Satan finally. There won't be a, a Rocky Ten for this. Satan will be defeated once and for all. But until that day, on the systems of this world, he has some power. He has some authority. The kind of authority where he can send a demon into a person. But is it the kind of authority where he would be able to cast a demon out? Well, Jesus has an answer for that question. But before we look at his answer, let's look at the second group that we have here in this crowd. The first group said that Jesus was working for the devil. The second group says, eh, you know, that was nice. It's kind of neat. But show us something else. You know, that was, that was good, but we might believe if you give us maybe a little bit more. I think it's easy for us to look at people like this in the Bible and go, oh, 
what are you doing? Jesus just performed a miracle in front of you, and you're going, eh, maybe it wasn't enough. You know, if we're honest, we do the exact same things in life. I shared a couple of Wednesday nights ago in Bible study here at church that a few weeks back, my wife said, hey, we only have 10 months left on this certain bill to the hospital. Just, just 10 months left. And I think my immediate response was something like this. Yeah, but as soon as we make that mass last payment, somebody's going to break a bone or get a stone. You know, I mean, it's just going to happen like that. I, I hate when I do that. I do. I, I hate that moment where I go, oh, I ran to be a negative nanny first. That was the first thing I did. But we all do that, don't we? We, we have these moments where we, we just, we rush to the negative. We rush to the bad. We rush to what may not happen that we would like. And you know, we do that at home, and we do it at work, and we do it at school. We do it out in the community. We do it with politics. We do it in the restaurant. Guess what? We even do it at church. Oh, well, man, we had a great crowd, you know, last Sunday, but oh, next Sunday's Memorial Day weekend. Oh, everybody's going to be gone. We might as well just cancel Sunday services. And then somebody else says, oh, no, don't do that. Because, man, if we, we don't have an offering and we don't meet budget, it doesn't matter what God's done the last 61 years. We're going to have to get our members to start selling plasma. You know, don't cancel Sunday services. Uh-uh, no, 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 don't do it. Somebody else might say, hey, well, you know what? I mean, we've got nursery volunteers lined up for 47 weeks. But what about 48? What's going to happen that week? We, we all have the ability to, to be in a moment, and at least for, for that moment, kind of forget Oh, yeah, God is God. He he still owns the world and the universe. Thankfully, we have fantastic folks at Holland Avenue, folks that are faithful, hardworking, wise. But, you know, if we're not careful, we can all talk and act sometimes like God's kind of fallen off his throne. Like, like there's something wrong with God because we didn't have another high attendance Sunday or we didn't have a, another high budget offering or, or we didn't have another high sign-up for volunteers for the nursery. If you're a Christian, I hope you know this, but the greatest miracle that has ever happened in your life is salvation. It's the greatest miracle. The second greatest miracle that's ever happened in your life is that you're not the only Christian. <laughs> other people got saved. And, and that God calls us together to be a part of a, a church together. He, he gives us a family of believers to be around so that we don't walk through this life alone. In other words, the Bible tells us that salvation is the most ultimate thing that could ever happen in our life. And so if we're saved, everything above hell is icing on the cake. The worst moment, if we're saved, is, is icing on the cake because we're saved. And so as we look at the difficult moments of life, whether we're looking at hospital bills or trying to find volunteers, what we do is we pray and we obey, we work hard, we try to be as wise as we possibly can. But we also watch our thoughts and we watch our attitudes and we watch our mouths so that we don't sound like the people that say, yeah, God, that was nice, but give us another sign. So how does Jesus respond to his accusers and his request for more signs? Look at verses 17 and 18. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. 
If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. You know, haters don't always hate out loud, right? Sometimes they have hateful thoughts. And so, so these haters, they weren't hating out loud, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. He either knew divinely, you know, by, by being the Son of God, kind of being able to read their minds, or he knew practically. He, he knew these folks. He watched the conduct of their life. Therefore, he knew how they thought, because how we think is followed by how we act. But either way, Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he responds to their questions, even though they may not have said it out loud. Can you imagine being part of that crowd? I, I, I think Jesus did this by Beelzebul. And then Jesus says that, and, and you didn't say it out loud. Oh, did I just say that out loud? No, you probably didn't. You know, Jesus just knew your thoughts. And so he responds to them. And notice again, Luke doesn't describe this in the way that maybe we might think. There's, there's no band, you know, striking up the music for Jesus to give some big, bold, powerful words. And he doesn't write that Jesus gives this in some loud, sarcastic tone like a schoolyard bully. He just says Jesus says it. And so what does Jesus say? Well, think of it this way. Imagine a husband and a wife are cooking dinner together one night. And they both have frying pans on the stove the husband is frying up some catfish. The wife is frying up some squash. The wife next to her frying pan has a pretty little towel on the counter that says, kiss the cook. And the husband, counter next to his frying pan, has a nice little towel that says, Mr. Goodlooking is cooking. And they're, they're sitting there, and, and they're, they're cooking and frying up their food. And they both turn around for a moment to do something on the counter behind them, and they hear a, and they turn back around to see the entire stovetop engulfed in one big, huge flame. I mean, both frying pans, both fancy towels, everything, one big, huge flame. And the husband turns to the wife and says, look what you did. And the wife says, well, I did. No way. This is your doing. I didn't do that. This is you. And back and forth and back and forth. They spit and they spat on and on and on, trying to blame the other one for the reason that there's a fire. Somehow in their mind, they realize they should walk out, and so they just keep fighting and arguing as they quietly walk down the hall, walk out in the front yard. They stand out in the front yard, and they continue to argue with one another as their house burns down to the ground. They loved being divided. They chose to be divided. And the reason we know they loved it is They didn't bother to work together to put the fire out. They didn't even bother to call the fire department. They loved fighting. They loved arguing. Rather than work together, they enjoyed division. So Jesus turns to this crowd and he says, give or take. So with the head football coach pull the starting quarterback out at the end of the fourth quarter when he's on a game-winning drive and replace the starting quarterback with the retired assistant librarian aide who's working at the shaved ice machine up in the concession stand. No, he wouldn't. And so Jesus says, so let me get this right. So Satan sent one of his henchmen to control this man. Why would he send someone else to get rid of his henchmen. Wouldn't he lose control? 
Wouldn't he actually be working against the kingdom he was trying to build? Wouldn't he be dividing his evil kingdom that he's trying to build up? In just a couple of sentences, Jesus caused every single person who was standing around to stop and go, huh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, that's right. (laughs) I mean, it it wouldn't make any sense for for Satan to, to try to send somebody to do something to one of his own demons. And then Jesus takes a mirror and he hands it to his accusers. Look what happens next in verse 19. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons... By whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. There were some local guys that were casting out demons. At least they were saying they were casting out demons. And they were connected to the local church. And so Jesus kind of asked them a question to kind of stir in their minds. All right, so if these guys and Jesus are the only ones claiming to cast out demons, and you're going to say that Jesus is doing it by the power of Satan, would you not at least consider that maybe these other guys are doing it by the power of Satan too if you have such a problem with demons being cast out? Jesus is drawing a line in the sand, so to speak. He's, he's dropping a challenge. Look what he says in verse 20. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's as if Jesus is saying, you know what? You guys are saying you're looking for a sign. Okay, here's your sign. That guy over there, he was mute. He wasn't able to talk at all. You all knew this. And now he's talking. He's rejoicing. You watched this happen. You're having a hard time explaining it. There's your sign. Have any of your locals ever pulled this off before? You see, when you look at this moment with Jesus, you really only have three ways to respond. Either Jesus was working for Satan, which makes absolutely no sense for Satan's standpoint, or Jesus was using some cool psychology. You know, he had some Jedi mind tricks. Man, he was just trying to, trying to get this guy to think different. Oh, if you just think different, everything will be fine. Everything will be okay. Or the third option is that Jesus was and is and will always be the Son of God who has authority over demons. Now, here's the thing with the first two options. Jesus says, I did this by the finger of God, and the guy is radically transformed and changed. And so the first two options get kind of hard. Jesus doesn't really give us room to say, yeah, those first two might be it. I love the scene back in Luke chapter 7, just a few chapters back. John the Baptist, he's in jail. He's in jail primarily for preaching the gospel. He's in jail and he's, he's really discouraged. I mean, he is hunkered down in the corner of his cell every day, just, just sad and depressed. And he sends some of his buddies to go talk with Jesus. He has a question for Jesus. And this is what happens. Luke 7, beginning in verse 20. When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Verse 21, at that very time he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So John's friends, they they make their way to Jesus. They ask Jesus this big question for John, and Jesus doesn't say anything to him. I mean, he doesn't respond. It's almost like Jesus says, hey, can you guys just kind of have a seat over there for a minute? And that's when the fireworks begin. 
Because about the time that they walked up, there was a crowd of other people that came. And some of these people were overwhelmed with disease. They were overwhelmed with illness. Some of these people were overwhelmed with evil spirits. Some of them were overwhelmed with physical blindness. And with a touch or maybe even just a word, Jesus, he heals them. He heals them of their diseases and their illnesses. He, he causes the evil spirits to go away. He makes them able to see again. Jesus didn't say a word to John's friends, but what he is saying with his hands and his life is loud and clear. You see, these people, they had no hope. The doctors had done all they could for the folks who were sick. These folks with evil spirits, their their life was a miserable world where they were just dominated by these spirits. And those who couldn't see, well, there was no reason for them to think that they would ever, ever see again. But Jesus heals them. He changes them in a moment. So he didn't say anything to John's friends at first, but they saw his power. And then Jesus decides to talk. And this is what he says in verse 22. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, The poor have the gospel preached to them. Just like the crowd with the mute, demon-possessed man, Jesus is in the same moment. His authority is being questioned. So he displays his authority. And then he declares his authority. We may say that the enemy has a measure of power and authority in this world. But there is absolutely no authority like the authority of Jesus. And so then it's as if he turns to John's friends and says, all right, sorry about that. Hey, now what was your question again? What was it? Oh, yes, am I the one? I, did any of that help with that question? But you know, that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't say, hang on a second, I've got a certificate here that says I'm the authentic Messiah. I'm going to roll it up like a scroll and you can take it back to John and, and everything will be okay. That's not what he does. You know what Jesus does? He sends these guys home with their jaws dropped. Can you imagine when they got back to the prison where John was being held? I mean, they'd be like a, a couple of kids that just went to the circus for the first time. John, 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 John. John wasn't going to get a word in. They they were going to start telling him over and over everything that they just saw. And then they're going to come back the next day, and they were going to say it all over again. And every single time that John looked at them from the corner, hunkered over in depression and said, is he the one? They would say, yes, yes, John, he is the one. You don't ever have to doubt it again. We'll tell you again, and we'll tell you again, he is the one. Jesus has one more thing he says to the accusers and the seekers here. In verse 21. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. This is interesting because Jesus is affirming Satan's power. He's affirming that that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. that, That over the systems of this world, that he has authority, a measure of authority, a measure of power. And he also says he is fully armed. Man, that's a big statement, right? 
There are all kinds of weapons that the enemy has to attack your marriage. All kind of weapons he has to attack your family and your, and your home. All kind of weapons to attack things at work and at school and, and just about every other place you go, including the church. Listen, God is doing wonderful things at Holland Avenue. So I can promise you the enemy is locked and loaded. And so we have to be on guard. We have to be watchful. We have to be alert. We have to pray and be wise, and we have to work hard. We have to work hard to remember that everything that we see in the pages of this Bible is true. We have to work hard to make sure that we do not give the enemy a foot in any door at this church. And we got a lot of doors in our church. We need to not give him a foothold. And we need to work hard and we need to pray hard to do two things. To outdo one another in loving Jesus. And to outdo one another in loving each other. Those are the best weapons we have against the enemy. Let's use them. I can't make you believe in the devil. I can't make you believe in demons. Lots of people don't. Lots of people think it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. I can't make you believe in those things. But Jesus says that the devil is real. And Jesus says that demons are real. And the Bible says the devil hates you and he wants you destroyed. But Jesus has an answer for that too. Look at verse 22. But when someone stronger than he attacks him, and overpowers him. He takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. This is so good. Jesus turns to the crowd, and in essence what he is saying is, Satan is strong. I am stronger. He looks at this crowd of, of broken people, of prideful people, of arrogant people, of people who have been mute, others that have been diseased and full of illness. He looks at them and he says, you know what? Satan wins a lot of battles, but I will win the war, period. Satan has no future, but Jesus will be the king forever and ever and ever. I love what Lig Duncan says here. Jesus makes it clear that his kingdom is not on the defensive. He's not pulling up the bridges, filling up the moats with alligators, and hunkering down in some castle somewhere, hoping to hang on. His kingdom is advancing. This is not a ceremony. This is not religion. We are worshiping the king. And he never loses power. I never, ever tire of hearing these words from Luther. And though this world with devils filled, let me ask you a question. You feel like you got a, got a devil at home? You feel like you got a devil at work? You feel like you got a devil at school? You feel like we got a, a devil in the government? You feel like we've got a, a devil in the military somewhere in a faraway land trying to take over the world. You feel like there's some devils with their hands close to buttons that launch nuclear weapons. Do you feel like 
there's some devils in this world? Well, there are. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear? Did did Luther hit his head? We will not fear because God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, yeah, he's grim. But we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure even when we feel like we can't. Why? For lo, his doom, it, it's sure. You can count on it. It's going to happen. One little word shall fail him. And then Luther writes this. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body, they may kill. That, that could happen. How many stories of missionaries do we know? They, they get on the mission field. They're there for a few weeks, for a few months, sharing Jesus with people, and, and they get murdered. And yet in that one place, the gospel thrives, and the greatest miracle in the world happens. People are saved. The body they may kill, but here's the kicker. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom And only his kingdom is forever. Listen, that is the elevator music that goes with the up button. He's the one. Jesus is the one.